Morning. Last week, if you were here, you'll remember that we heard about Martin's ass. Or more specifically, Balaam's ass and the donkey used for Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. We're carrying on through Matthew's Gospel, and so what we've heard today follows on. So we're still inside Holy Week between the triumphal entry and the events of the Easter weekend. There's an exchange in this reading between Jesus and the priests. And uh, at least half of that reading dealt with issues to do with John, John the Baptist. But I'm not going to go into that. I mean, I'll mention John and one or two things, but we won't go into that part of the reading today because John has his own specific focus uh, as we go through Advent. Um, there's a week where we particularly look at John because he was the forerunner and, uh, and the most important thing to happen before the Annunciation and the birth of Christ at Christmas, so that's there. So today we're looking more at that parable that Jesus told and in some way thinking about how it reflects and is useful for us today. In that sense, what you will find as we go through is that we're actually extending the, con- the confession. We were asked to think about things that we've done and said wrong and how we can apologise and the encouragement we're given that God forgives us and we get a new start. Well, that's all useful stuff if you keep that in mind as we think about this parable and the challenges that Jesus gives through what he said in that particular story. So the background to this reading today, remember that Jesus came in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey with a crowd, with the palms, Hosanna to the son of David, It was expected by a lot of people that when he entered the city, he would turn in one direction and head off towards either Herod's palace or the Roman fort and start a physical coup to push the occupiers out and give Jerusalem back to the Jews. And that's what some people understood as the liberation and God coming back to his city. But instead of that, he came in and turned the other direction and went to the temple and cleared out all the money lenders and the people that were abusing the use of the temple. You've made it a den of thieves. And then he went back to the temple and started teaching. So instead of looking at the physical slavery and enslavement and occupation of the people, which is what they thought would happen, He's turning to the spiritual occupation and slavery. He wants to free the souls from the occupation of sin rather than the physical uh, people from the occupation of the Romans. And that brings him directly into conflict with authority because he comes in and starts speaking with his own authority and those listening are thinking, what's he playing at? Imagine... Uh, if someone we didn't know came in off the street one Sunday um, and started preaching at the front of the church, I think it would be excusable if one or two people started thinking, well, who are you? By what authority 
are you standing there saying those things to us that we should start believing you? So you could say that the priests were in their rights to question him. But if you've been reading the gospel, you know that he's not completely unknown. He's coming with a bow wave of of, uh, reputation before him. He's been healing people. He's been preaching with authority. He has a massive group of people following him. So when they ask him that question, they, they know who he is. They know what he thinks. They're just trying to catch him out. And so Jesus says, well, if you're questioning my authority, let me just check your credentials on assessing someone with their authority. Who did John work for? What was John's authority? And the officials sat on the fence. They knew that if they said he had man's authority, that they would upset a lot of people. It's a bit like if we said to the archbishop, "Um, what do you think of John Stott or Mother Teresa? or Billy Graham, or someone like that, and he turned around and said, oh, they were just, you know, in it for what they could get. They weren't really doing God's work. There'd be a lot of people that would complain about that. And so they thought, no, we can't, we can't trash John, but neither can we say he was doing God's work, because then we're caught out. And it's for two reasons. One was they weren't listening to him, and that's the one that Jesus picked up. If you believed John was who he said he was, then why didn't you react to what he said like everyone else? Remember that John wasn't preaching to Gentiles only. He was calling the Jews to repentance. He wanted them to come and baptize. Baptism was always used uh, as a way of other people becoming Jewish. Clean off all your gentile nastiness and become a nice Jew and be baptised. But he was saying to the Jews, you think you're safe, but you need sorting out as well. None of us should be complacent. And those priests walking around in their fine robes and thinking that they own the place in the temple, they should have listened and been challenged and come back. And they didn't. And that's why Jesus has this conflict with them. But the other thing is, If they'd have said, yes, we believe that what John said was from God, remember who first told everyone who Jesus was? It was John. Here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he told his own followers to leave him and follow Jesus because he was so unworthy, he couldn't even tie up the sandals He couldn't even do the lowest job for Jesus because he was so important compared with him. That was the implication if they'd have said, um, yeah, we see John was important. They sat on the fence and so Jesus said, well, if you won't commit and talk about that, then don't ask me about my authority. And then he comes to this parable to teach. And... um, In my mind, I always think when I read any parable that Jesus tells, I always think in my mind, you have to start by saying once upon a time. And in fact, I was looking at the translation in uh, one particular New Testament I've got written by N.T. Wright, who was the previous Bishop of Durham and has written his own set of um, study books through the whole New Testament and translated for himself because he's a scholar He's translated from the Greek into English. So his translation of the parable starts with once upon a time. So I thought, well, that's um, 
we think, we think alike, so that's good. And it's once upon a time because he's making the story up. He's not saying, I know this man back in Nazareth who's got two sons and this is how they behaved and having told you that, I'll shoehorn that to try and teach you a lesson. He's not doing that. He's saying, I want to teach you something and so I'm going to make up a story to help you to understand it. So once upon a time, there was a man who had two sons. The first son refuses to do what his father asks, but later on changes his mind and does what his father asks. Another son immediately says, yes, he'll do it, but then when it comes to it, he doesn't. He disobeys. And Jesus uses this story, this um, contrast between the two attitudes to say, look at the way that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are behaving and look at how you, the priests, are behaving. The first thing I want to say is that when it says the first son did one thing and the other son did something else, don't read into it, uh, as we might elsewhere, that first means oldest and other means youngest for the older and younger sons. Like in the prodigal son, when he says the younger son did something and the older son did something else. That was deliberate because the older son in Jewish uh, culture was the inheritor. And the Jews saw themselves as inheriting God's blessings. So in any story, you might think they're the older son and the younger son are those that come along afterwards. So if that's what Jesus wanted to say when he told his once upon a time, he probably would have said it all around. He'd have said... The younger son said no and then did it, and the older son said yes and then didn't, and that would key him. But he didn't. He's simply saying there there are these two. Uh, On the one hand, there's this one that does this, and on the other hand, there's this other one that does that. And he could have, if he wanted in this story, have actually given four sons. If he wanted to say there are four different reactions that could have been had, So, for example, when when he gave the parable of the sower, although he was talking about those that hear and respond, he actually talked about the four different ways the word could fall. Onto the path, into the stony ground, amongst the thorns and thistles, or in the good soil. So he gave all of them. And he could have done all four here. He could have said he had four sons. He went to the first one, and he said, yes, I'll do it. And he did it. He went to the second one and he said, yes, I'll do it. And then he didn't do it. And he went to the third one who said, no, I won't do it. And then he did it. And he went to the fourth one who said, no, I won't do it. And he didn't do it. That's the four options. But he didn't go through all of that because he wasn't doing a general teaching about the ways it can be. He was specifically talking to one group about them and a specific another group. One group that said they wouldn't and they did, and one group that said they would and they didn't. There's only ever been one person who always said yes and then did it. And he was the one telling the story. So let's think about how this might relate to us, because we're not there now. We're not one of the groups or the other group. We're listening to the story and what it meant. Jesus was defending the people who came to him 
in the temple. These Pharisees and high priests and all the others in the hierarchy of the temple life were, as they always seemed to be doing, acting self-righteously. We are the ones that are in God's favour. We are the ones that will be called to sit at his right hand because we know what we're doing and we understand all the scriptures and we come in and we do this and you know we live our lives religiously, is what they would say. And this lot, the, this scum, they come in and sit and listen and you spend all your time with them. And, and you're telling them that they're forgiven. Who tells you you can do that? That's why they said, what's your authority? And Jesus is basically saying, they may, or they did, not they may, they have lived a life that God is not proud of. They have done things that God's not happy with at all. But having been like that, they have responded to the message that says, come to me, Turn to me and I will renew your life. Come to me and I will change things so that from now on you can be different. From now on you can act and think and behave in a way that pleases God. Whereas you, the people who are complaining, you've given everyone, and you think you're also giving it to God, you're giving everyone the impression that you are pleasing him and doing everything he wants because you make all these noises and you strut around and you pray out loud and turn up at the temple every day and it all looks very nice but actually when you get behind that you're not doing the things that you claim you're doing and I think the challenge for us from this reading is to ask where where we are with those two attitudes If we say for a start that we acknowledge that none of us can claim that we always say yes and then do what we say, and hopefully none of us are at the other extreme where we always say no and then don't do it, I don't think we'd be here. Well, we wouldn't be here if we thought that. So we are sometimes in one or other of the two areas where we might say no but then do something or we say yes and then we don't so let's look at these two let's think first about when we say yes and then don't do it this is a difficult one for me because no it's not that's the other one I'm the other one. I say no and then I do it. So uh, saying yes and then not doing it is a bit like saying I have decided to follow Jesus, brackets, sometimes. If you remember uh, Mary Poppins, do you remember what she told the kids about being careless with promises? She used a particular phrase about the way you promise without meaning it. Do you remember anyone? No? She called them pie crust promises. Easily made and easily broken. 
And that, we should think about that. It can be very easy to say, yes, I promise, I'll do that, I'll commit. I mean, think about it in normal life. I mean, in a way, when we, when we say our confession and we talk about the, the, the sins we've, we've done, things we've done and haven't, or haven't done, sometimes that can be because we have actually said to someone else, yes, I'll, I'll do that. Or, no, I won't do that, I promise. You know, it's, it's the I promise bit. I promise something. And then for whatever reason, it doesn't happen. Where do we go with that? How do we get past that? How do we, how do we sort out the damage that can do? If it's, say, with a friend where you promise something, then don't do it. Do we... Do we sit back and, and, and just sort of in a relaxed way think, well, we're good friends, they'll, they'll get over it? Or do we understand the, 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 the rust that can get in, in between the, the joint, that can start scraping and, and causing the friction now, you know, the mistrust that can happen? Well, last time I asked and they said they'd do it, they didn't. So should I trust this time when they've said they will? It can be damaging do we sort that out? Do we deal with it as soon as we can? Peter. God bless Peter. Along with Thomas, my two favourites. Peter would say yes without thinking. Because he wanted to do what was right. Yes, of course we'll do that. No, no, I'll never. I would never turn away from you. And then three times in quick succession, he denied he even knew Jesus. When we say we'll do something and then don't do it, we should treat it more seriously than just making a New Year's resolution and then saying, oh well, next year I'll try again. We need to think seriously and ask ourselves, How's that damaged things? Has it damaged things with each other? And, and has it damaged my relationship with God? What can I do to fix that? The other one is saying no, but then doing something anyway. And this is me, because I've got a natural rebellious streak in me that says I don't like people telling me what to do, especially at home. (laughs) If I'm given a list of things to do, when I hear myself doing it, and I I can hear my thoughts going as I'm, I'm like, why are you doing this? When Judy will say, oh, while I'm out, can you just run the hoover through? And I'll say, well, I've got other things to do, you know. I'm not just here doing nothing. Thinking to myself, well, actually, I'm just sitting here doing nothing. But I would like to spontaneously do the hoovering, not be told. So I'll say no, but I know full well, as soon as you've gone out the door, that I'll get the hoover out and run it round. And I think, why? Why have I caused stress? Why am I, why am I stirring? Th- why don't I just say yes to start with? But I'll still get a thank you when she comes in, when she sees it hasn't, you know, she won't have a go at me. She'll just say, oh, thanks for doing the hoovering. And we need to understand that's why in this 
in this parable. That's why Jesus says that these are the people on the, on the right side. People who said no but then changed are the good guys. He'd rather it we didn't say no in the first place. God's not saying to us, everyone go out and have a good time, do everything wrong, and then come back and say sorry, and we'll be all right. He'd rather we didn't get it wrong in the first place. Because every time it goes wrong, it, it causes damage. But if we are doing things wrong, then we need to understand there's always a way back. Nothing we do is so bad that we can't come back. And that gives me the excuse to link into my other favourite once upon a time, just for a minute, I promise, with the prodigal son, where there was another man with two sons. And one of the sons left home, left his father in shame, went off, enjoyed himself, had a good time. And when things got really bad, he thought, I can either sit here and die or I can put my towel between my legs, go home and say sorry. He didn't know what reaction he'd get, but he went home and his father welcomed him. And that's the message we have, that when we do things wrong, in God's eyes, that when we say sorry, as long as we really mean it, and it's not a sorry as we might do as kids, where we say, I'm sorry I've got caught, and there might be some punishment now. I'm sorry, and I've said sorry, so get over it, which is what you might say to someone. It's saying, I've realised what I did. I've realised the damage it caused. And I would give anything to turn the clock back to before it happened so I could do it differently. I know I can't, but that's, you know, in my heart, that's what I would want. That's what he wants. If, if that's how we feel about something when we've done it wrong, if we want to turn the clock back and change it, then we get the assurance that Steve gave us this morning in the absolution that, that if you really mean you're sorry, really mean it, not just saying it because it's a magic word, there'll be forgiveness. And that's what the priests couldn't deal with in the temple, that these people who had lived a life of shame, proudly lived it probably, have changed their minds and come in and said, we're sorry, we want to change now. And Jesus said, that's all that's needed what the priests were doing was exactly what the Pharisees did in the, in the parable of the prodigal son. They were standing there like the older brother saying, I've been here all this time slaving for you and you never once thanked me. And this son of yours turns up and you throw a party for him. We will always be welcome in God's house if we come with the right attitude. Saying no, but then doing what we said, or what was asked of us, is always better than saying yes and then not doing it. But it's important to realise that if you say yes and then don't do it, that doesn't have to be the end of the story. Because those priests could quite easily have walked round to where the prostitutes and tax collectors were sitting and saying, I recognise I'm no better than them and I need to react the same way as them. They could say yes and then not do it, but then say yes again. As long as it ends up with a yes. doesn't matter what journey you've been on on the way. Nothing we've done, nothing we've said 
is so bad that you can't, at the end of it, say yes. And that's all that's needed. God has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And so we have an inbuilt alarm. We have our conscience, which if we allow ourselves to listen and don't drown him out with other thoughts, our conscience will tell us when we're wrong. Just in that way that if I complain or, or, or say I won't do the hoovering, immediately I'm, in my mind I'm thinking, but I, I know I'm going to, why am, I, why am I acting this way? Whatever we're doing, if we're listening to God, he's not just standing there waiting for us to trip to tell us off. He wants to help us. So when he sees things going wrong, his spirit is there to say to us, hang on a minute, be honest with yourself. Do you, before you even say that word, do you, do you recognise that the point you're about to score is going to cause damage, which will then take days, weeks, months to fix afterwards? Don't you think you should reel back in again? So if we're listening, if we're attentive to God, he will help us. Don't be self-righteous. Don't, don't think that we can do it in our own strength, that we've already got what's needed. If we accept that we're vulnerable, if we accept that we've made mistakes, that we have said yes and then, and then not done it, that's all he wants. Instead of self-righteousness, Jesus wants meekness. Blessed are the meek. To be meek is to be under God's command. It used to be a phrase apparently used in, in uh, breaking horses. Instead of saying you break the horse, which means you can then put the saddle on and ride it, people say you can meek the horse. And that's what we should become like. Whereas I'm saying, I don't want you telling me to do something. That's like the unbroken horse saying, no, you can't get on my back and ride me. But true horse riders who are one with their horse can sit on the horse without a saddle, without a bridle, without a bit. And the horse will move just by the subtle pressure on the, with the knee of the rider. And they'll work as one. That's how God wants us to be. If we're meek, if we listen to him, if we're attentive to what he wants, then we won't stumble. And we won't have to feel the spurs in our sides. I'm going to hand back to Steve now. And I think we're going to reflect a bit more on this.